Jesus. And uh, you can be seated in just a moment, but we're, we're going to go through World War III. Lead us in, well, he left again. <laughs> this is getting weird. He's very fast, have you noticed? Joe! I want to sing one more stanza. Boy, he's quick. All right. Lord, we just thank you for your blessing on this tonight. And we pray that, Lord, your word will live in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible confirmation that Bible prophecy is that you gave us your word, and it's 100% accurate. We thank you for it and pray you'll bless us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I believe it's the last days. We're going to see that. <laughs> Boy. Now, the reason I'm adding this as a little addendum to the Revelation series is because this war, this what we're calling the final jihad, World War III, the invasion of Israel is at the doorstep. It's closer than Armageddon. It precedes Armageddon. And I don't know about you, but when I watch the little bit of news that I watch, because you know what I tell you about the news, when it's the network news and most of the news that's out there, take it with a tablespoon of salt, especially if it has anything to do with politics or anything to do with religion, because they are not for your faith, primarily, overwhelmingly. They are not for your Christ. They are not for your God. And they are for the kind of society we really don't want uh, as Christians. And they're heavily biased. So take them with a tablespoon of salt. But when I watch them and I see the events and I read news, I'm very aware that the prophetic time clock is ticking. And where it's really ticking is what we're looking at uh, tonight. And we're going to close it out next week. The final jihad, World War III. Now let's look at what we saw last time. We saw the history of Israel. Remember I told you that Israel is the crown jewel of Bible prophecy. It's the crown jewel of Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy focuses overwhelmingly on Israel. End time Bible prophecy focuses overwhelmingly on Israel. As a matter of fact, it predicts that Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling and that Israel will be the sore toe, uh, as it were, of the entire world in the last days. And we see that every president that's elected in the United States of America goes and tries to fix the Arab-Israeli conflict, and nobody does it. Nobody succeeds. They get real close, and then they don't make it. That's because that's waiting on the Antichrist, and he alone will bring a temporary Arab-Israeli peace, and he will betray it three and a half years into his seven-year peace treaty. But we saw the history of Israel, and we saw that in spite of relentless persecution, social ostracism, and war, Israel, which Ezekiel saw in chapter 37 of Ezekiel as a valley of dry, dead bones that would be resurrected, Israel was regathered, we saw, as a nation. Now, in 1948, when that happened, Ezekiel 37 
was fulfilled. It was an amazing fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Stunning. In 1948, several major Bible prophecies were fulfilled when Israel became a nation in how long? One day. Isaiah 66 says, Who has ever seen or heard of anything as strange as this? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Can you think of one? I can't. Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? Never. But by the time Jerusalem's birth pains begin, Isaiah said, the baby will be born. The nation will come forth. And that happened in 1948. I was born five years later. What about you? Think about it. Right there, almost in the epicenter of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, here's what God says. Would I ever bring this nation or the vision for your life? Would I ever bring it to the point of birth and then not deliver it? No, I would never keep this nation from being born, says your God. And for those of you here tonight who are waiting on God to fulfill something He's promised you, will He bring it to the birth and not bring it forth? No. He will fulfill and complete that which concerns you. Now, those of us who believe wholeheartedly that the Bible is indeed the infallible and the inspired Word of God also realize that when the Bible declares something is going to happen, folks, guarantee you it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And when you look at the Bible prophecies that have been fulfilled, and most of them have, most end-time prophecies, most prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled. There's only a few left to be fulfilled. Book of Revelation, and are you ready? Ezekiel 38. That we're going to be looking at. Now to date, Bible prophecy has been fulfilled not only with 100% accuracy, but literally as well. This gives us every reason to believe this trend will continue with the yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies in God's Word. And one such prophecy will be the famed Magog invasion of the land of Israel. This prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 was written over 2,500 years ago. Think about that. 25 centuries ago. When a lot of the nations that we're going to talk about tonight didn't even exist. Didn't even exist. It details an attempted surprise attack on the nation of Israel. Have you, ever, have you noticed recently how hated Israel is? Have you noticed it? Oh, man, anti-Semitism is on the rise again, church. Don't buy into it. However, it's not a surprise for any student of God's Word as this same passage lists in detail, we're going to see it tonight, who is involved in this invasion of Israel, what they will do, why they will do it, how they will be defeated, and even the curious battle cleanup. God covers all of that. You know how God can do that? Because God is God, and God knows the end from the beginning. See, when you got saved, He saw the end of your life before you even got saved. God knows the day and the hour you're going to meet Him. He's not going to tell you because you wouldn't be able to live with it. But He knows. He knows the end from the beginning. And He looks at a nation, and even before the nation begins, He knows how it's going to end. And so, let's look at the players tonight. And it's going to sound a little bit geographical because it is. But as we go through these different countries, 
I'm going to point out to you how right now they have already lined up with Ezekiel 38. Let's look at the beginning of Ezekiel now, verse 1. The word, or verse 6, or yeah, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. Now, don't let these names throw you because I'm going to tell you exactly who they are. So everybody say with me, Gog. Sounds like somebody have a science fiction movie, right? Of the land of Magog. Now he says, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around. Now look what God says he's going to do to nations. I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to put hooks in your jaws. And I'm going to bring you out with your whole army. See, people think they're in charge of things. They're not. God's in charge of the nations of the world. I said God's in charge of the nations of the world. Look what he says. He said, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and I'm pulling you out. And what's he going to do with them? Your horses, your horsemen, fully armed in a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Now he names some more, and we're going to cover these. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Here's another one. Also Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Togarma from the north with all its troops. The many, now watch this, look what's happening. The many nations with you. Who's the you? Gog and the land of Magog. Okay? We're talking about a confederacy of nations. And God's going to pull them out. And look what he says is going to... Now he gives eight names as participants in the invasion of Israel that will follow the regathering of the Jews of their homeland. He said, I'm going to do this in the latter years. Now, the first one mentioned is Gog. Now, let's just make this real simple. Gog is obviously the leader of the people of Magog. Could be talking about a government, an individual. It doesn't really matter. It is whoever is in charge of the land of Magog. In fact, by some renderings, he is the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So it's either the leading government or a leading individual. Now look what the next one is, the land of Magog. Now what in the world is the land of Magog? The most common identity for Magog is in Central Asia. The Jewish historian Josephus said, Magog founded the Magogians. How would you like to be a Magogian? <laughs> hey, where are you from, Magog? Oh, so you're a Magogian. Now they were called Scythians by the Greeks. What were Scythians? Scythians were a nomadic tribe who inhabited the ancient territory from Central Asia across the southern part of ancient Russia. Very important. Today, this area is inhabited by several former Soviet republics. Now I get to do some heavy names here. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and possibly northern parts of Afghanistan. They like Stan. But here's the important thing. 
all of these nations that make up the land of Magog are Russian and they are they have one thing in common Islam God knows the end from the beginning he knows so he's telling us here that this Gog and Magog are going to be from the uttermost north of the earth there's only one thing uttermost north Russia and that they would be virulently anti-Semitic. Well, who is the most anti-Semitic people on the earth now? Muslims. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Militant Islam has been on the rise in these countries since the fall of the Soviet Union. When Islam no longer had to be practiced secretly, now Islam is galloping through Russia. Multiplying, growing very, very quickly. Look at this, radical Islamic groups such as the Islamic Renaissance Party and the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan are working to reunite Central Asian nations and ultimately the entire Muslim world. And it is from this part of the world, church, that a leader will arise to bring together a great coalition of nations that will invade Israel to wipe it off the face of the map, to vaporize it, to destroy it completely where no Jew is left. Now, when I say these things, if you know anything about the news, you know that Russia is doing everything they can to help Iran. We'll get into that. The identity of Magog is not too difficult to figure out for another reason. As I've already mentioned, in Ezekiel 38, 15, he says, you shall come from your place out of the north parts. King James says the uttermost north, you and many people with you. So, the north parts is literally the extreme or uttermost part of the north, which can only be Russia. So we know who Gog and Magog are. Russia. And Ezekiel saw this when there was no Russia. Now that we've identified Magog, let's look at the company that they keep. And they don't keep good company. They keep bad company. Let's look. Here's more allies. Ezekiel 38, verses 3 to 6 says... This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around. Why is God against Magog? Because they are atheistic. They hate God. They persecute Christians. They have persecuted the Jews. They have persecuted God's people ever since they have existed. They swear God off. You cannot be a believer living in peace in Russia. He says, I'm against you, Russia. Guarantee you when a nation turns its back on God, God will win. Now he says, I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army. Horses, horsemen, fully armed, great horde, brandishing swords, and all of that. Then he names more. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer with his troops and Beth Togarma from the far north. Now let's look at Meshach and Tubal, prince of Meshach and Tubal. Well, these were the names of the fifth and sixth sons of Japheth, the son of Noah. So who are these people? Ezekiel 27 verse 13 says that Meshach and Tubal are trading partners with Tyre, which is modern Lebanon. It's likely that Meshach and Tubal refer to the ancient people who dwelled in the area around, primarily south of, the Black Sea, 
and the Caspian Sea in Ezekiel's day. Now where is that today? Today these nations would be in the modern country of Turkey, parts of southern Russia, and northern Iran. All areas with a Muslim majority. Does it begin to make sense now how Ezekiel nailed these nations and said, you're going to be coming against Israel? Now what about Persia? Well, Persia is Iran and Iraq. The ancient landmass of Persia was comprised of what we now would call Iran and Iraq. And there it is right up there. Tehran, Iran, right there. And Iraq to the left of it in the green. That's the ancient land of Persia. Persia, it's an easy one to figure out who he's talking about. In 539 B.C., the Persians conquered the city of Babylon. You only need to look at a map of the ancient Persian Empire to see that it was centered in a nation known today as Iran, who is the worst of the worst and will certainly do everything they can, and we're going to see in just a little bit, to destroy the land of Israel. Why does this matter to you and me tonight? Because you could wake up tomorrow morning and see on the news that they've invaded Israel. You need to know this because you need to understand, as the church of Jesus Christ, who is supposed to have understanding, that these things are going to happen. There's not going to be peace in the Middle East. Nobody's going to bring it. It's only going to get worse until the Antichrist brings a temporary peace. And so it's good to understand these things instead of being fear-driven or worry-driven by world events and the news. I'm not driven by the newspaper. I'm driven by the Bible and what it says. And look how the Bible has shown us what's going to happen before it even does. In fact, Iran was called Persia until 1935 when it was changed to Iran and then to the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979 during the Iranian Revolution when our nation was humiliated by the Ayatollah Khomeini. And we couldn't get our guys out. And we were humiliated. And that was the beginning of the Islamic Revolution. It's no secret that Iran is an arch enemy of Israel and the West and a supporter of the Palestinians. They are actively working to get other Arab countries to change camps in their cooperation with the U.S. and Israel. Iran. Consider the following facts about this primary ally of Russia. And I found it very, very interesting. When the Berlin Wall fell and it looked like the whole Russian Empire was gone, we knew it would come back because the Bible said it would be there in the last days. And now we find out that Russia is probably the closest ally Iran has in preparing nuclear weaponry to come against the land of Israel. Look at this. Fresh facts. Iran has just been caught secretly building a second uranium enrichment facility on a military base in the religious capital of Iran, a city known as Qom, Q-O-M, Qom. Two, a growing number of Western military analysts say the design of this new, new facility and its secrecy and location clearly indicates it was being built by Iran for the purpose of creating nuclear weaponry, not nuclear energy. Three, Iran has thus been caught in its third lie 
since 2002 with regards to building secret nuclear development facilities in Natanz, Iraq, and now Qom. Four, Ahmadinejad refused four times during his recent NBC News interview to rule out the building of nuclear weapons. And of course, we knew NBC would not press him. Fifth, A.Q. Khan, K-H-A-N, the father of Pakistan's nuclear weapons development program, has just admitted selling advanced nuclear weapons blueprints years ago to Iran for millions of dollars. And look at the blood on his hands. Should it ever be detonated, and it will. Six, the latest IAEA report indicates Iran has enough low-enriched uranium to produce enough high-enriched uranium by 2010, a few months away, to produce two nuclear weapons. Everybody say, oh, me, not amen. <laughs> say, Pastor, this is, this is kind of heavy. It is heavy. I want you to understand the times we're living in. But I got good news for you. Jesus said, when you see all these th- things happening, lift up your head. Your redemption draws nigh. <clears throat> but now let's go on. Iran has just completed, uh, completed testing. It's most advanced missiles capable of reaching Israel. Eight. Iranian leader Mahmoud Ahmadinejad began his speech to the UN by praying for Allah to hasten the coming of the Islamic Messiah right in front of all the UN representatives, which according to his theology requires the destruction of Judeo-Christian civilization as we know it. He believes the 12th imam, and that's kind of convoluted, I'll share it with you, uh, teach it to you some night, but suffice it to say, he's looking for his Messiah like we look for ours, but his Messiah is not so, is not real, does not exist. And when you hear the story of how all that came about, it's very clear. But he believes the world must be engulfed in flames and in chaos for this 12th Imam to return. And when he returns, he'll bring the entire world under Sharia law which is hell to live in. And so he thinks it's incumbent upon him, and he believes that he has been divinely chosen to usher in the return of the 12th imam. How are you going to do that? Nuclear weaponry. Now look at verse uh, or, or number 9. Ahmadinejad spoke more openly about his end-of-the-world theology during his UN speech than ever before. He's never been more transparent right in front of the whole world, even with half of the representatives of the U.N. getting up and walking out on him. He continued. Number 10 in the last one, Ahmadinejad was asked for the first time by an American reporter to describe his relationship with the 12th imam. And he admitted on camera he's communicating with this mystical Shia Messiah. So he believes a 12th imam, a mystical messiah, is speaking to him, directing him, guiding him, anointing him, enabling him to vaporize Israel and the great Satan, us. Humanly speaking, war is coming. The West does not seem determined enough to stop Iran from getting the bomb. 
So unless the Lord intervenes, Israel might soon feel compelled to launch a preemptive strike against Iran. It won't be easy, and the entire region could go up in flames. And I'm going to tell you, the Middle East is going to be nothing but a seething cauldron of trouble until Antichrist gives temporary peace, and ultimately Jesus Christ comes and ends it and sets in his kingdom. And he's the real, the real deal. Amen? Go ahead and give him praise. That's all right. He's the real deal. Now, here's another name, another nation involved with this confederacy of nations against Israel, Cush. Cush is Sudan, the Sudan. The ancient kingdom of Cush in Ezekiel's time was the land just south of Egypt on the Nile River. Today, this land is occupied by Sudan. Sudan is home to the National Islamic Front, is ruled by an Islamic military dictatorship, is a strong supporter of Iraq, was home to his Osama bin Laden from 91 to 96, and harbors countless Islamic terrorist groups. And Ezekiel tagged them, named them, said they would be involved in the attack against Israel. Sudan would easily fit into the coalition as it is already close allies with Iran, trading military supplies for docking rights on the Red Sea, shipping routes. So they're already in cahoots. Now here's Put, and Put is Libya. Muammar Gaddafi, who's rambling at the recent United Nations meeting in New York, went so long, was so convoluted, so confusing, his interpreter fainted. (laughs) Clump! Ancient Put was the land just west of Egypt, or what is today Libya, Gaddafi territory. Libya is another sponsor of terrorism and openly refuses to recognize Israel's right to even exist. When the coalition against Israel is formed, Libya won't have to be asked twice to join. Verse 6 adds two others, Gomer and Beth Togarma, to the coalition. Gomer was the first son of Japheth, the Gomerites were the ancient Sumerians expelled in 700 B.C. from the southern steppes of Russia into what is today Turkey. Togarma is the third son of Gomer. And Beth, the Beth at the beginning of Beth Togarma, Beth means house or place of, like we say Beth-el. Beth means house of El God, house of God. Beth Togarma, house of In Ezekiel's time, there was a city in Cappadocia, modern Turkey, known as Tagarma, Tagarma, Tilgaramu, and Takarma, or Takarama, not to be confused with Texarkana. I'm sorry. Some of these I can't resist. Chuck, quit nodding your head at me. I'm just trying to have fun. This is heavy tonight. Chuck is, man. All right. The possibility that four of the names, watch this. Four of the names mentioned in Ezekiel are now in Turkey. Makes a pretty strong argument for Turkey being a part of the invasion of Israel. Current circumstances in that country also lend this view some credibility. Since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Turkey has been gaining inroads into Central Asia or Magog. Okay? It's also linked in Central Asia both ethnically and linguistically, has a growing number of political parties that uh, support opposition to Israel, establishment of a Turkish Islamic Republic, 
and the worldwide rule of Islam. Now, these nations listed specifically are all somewhat distant from Israel. By adding the words, and many people with you, in verse 6, God may have been indicating that those nations and people in closer proximity to Israel will join the final jihad. Other nations that might join the alliance are Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. All of them are Islamic nations, and all of them would not hesitate to support the destruction of Israel where the opportunity to join such a vast coalition be presented to them. They want Israel gone. They don't just want more of the land. They want the Jewish people incinerated. They are anti-Semitic. They hate God's people. Hard to understand, isn't it? I can't imagine hating somebody that way, but they do. In summary, the following coalition of nations will join together in a massive attack against the apple of God's eye, Israel and the Jewish people. And here they are. Well, there they aren't. (laughs) Okay. You saw them anyway. Now, why will they attack? Do you all have it in your notes, by the way? It's not in the notes. Okay. I'll try to bring it out later. Why will they attack? Why do this to Israel? What is the motive? Ezekiel gives us the motive. The reasons God gives us for the enemy's invasion of Israel are further proof that the attack will be an Islamic invasion. It'll be Islamic. The first reason God gives for the invasion in Ezekiel 38 is a desire by the coalition to cover the Jewish land and wipe them off the face of the earth. That's what they want to do. Urged on by a hatred of the Jewish people. They will seek to destroy them and the nation of Israel. This is the stated goal today of almost every Islamic nation in the Middle East. Let's just take a look here. Well, there you go. That is Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, president of Iran, that Ezekiel said would join a coalition of nations that would come against Israel. He said it 2,500 years ago, Ezekiel did. And now, 25 centuries later, there you have it, preparing, lined up, 
virulent hatred for the land Ezekiel said they would invade. And what do they want? Death to Israel. Death to Israel. When God says, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. And what we're going to see tonight and next week when we look at the actual battle next week, we're going to see that God so fulfills that word. That's why I encourage you all the time, bless Israel. Pray for Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem because they are surrounded by these enemies right now. The eight nations that we looked at, all of them, are Islamic, are anti-Israeli, are anti-Semitic, believe that the Jews have no right to be in the land of Israel, believe that they took it by force and not by right. They don't believe that God gave it to them, and they want them completely wiped off the map. And and Iran and that president are preparing nuclear weaponry as we speak, the uranium enrichment, everything they need to fire missiles toward the land of Israel and do the very thing he just led all the Iranian people in saying, death to Israel. But the Lord's not going to let it happen. The Lord's not going to let it happen. Let's just move on here. Uh, there we go. Now here's the next motive. God tells us that they also come to seize plunder and to capture great spoil. That's the second motive. They want to wipe Israel off the face of the map, but they want plunder. They're after something. Now I believe it's going to be fuel. I believe it's going to be fuel. It's going to be mineral deposits that are rich in the Dead Sea. And I believe it's going to have everything to do with oil. And they're going to come to capture great spoil. They're going to attack them to plunder them. Many verses in the Quran advocate plundering for the benefit of Islam. And there are several instances of this war tactic throughout the history of Muhammad's life. In fact, it's a common theme in his teachings. I'm going to tell you something tonight in all honesty. And I know there are many, many Muslim people who are not violent. As a matter of fact, the majority of Muslims are not violent. They don't, I have to assume, fully understand what's in the Quran. But the Quran calls you and me an infidel. And the Quran says that if infidels don't convert to Islam, then we are to be slaughtered. We are to be killed. And the Quran clearly teaches world conquest by uh, Muhammad and by Islam, and that the whole world should be under Sharia law. So there is no question that the Quran, the Bible of the Islamics, of, of the Muslims, the Quran teaches violence. If you're a hardcore believer and you're a literalist with the Quran, then you believe in violence. Jihad is the only way. And you also believe that it's Allah. It's the destiny of the Muslim people. It's Allah's will that Islam rule the world. And that's what you see in the Quran. And Muhammad was a warrior. He was not like our Jesus. He attacked. He killed. He took land by force. He took property by force. Not like our Jesus, 
who said, I could call on 12 legions of angels right now and they would come and deliver me, but I have come to die for you. He didn't do one thing violent. When, they, when Simon Peter cut off that, that, the ear of that soldier, our Jesus picked up the ear and healed him. And he said, our Jesus said, he that lives by the sword will die by the sword. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, I would call my soldiers and they would fight. But it's not of this world. My kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. And we don't take the world by violent force. We take the world by preaching the gospel and changing the world one soul at a time. There is a huge, massive difference between Islam and Christianity. You can't compare them. And Muhammad never said, I died for your sins. Islam is a works righteousness religion. You've got to do works, good works, to get into heaven. And the only way you can really be sure you're going, if you really want to be sure, it's martyrdom. It's jihad. It's giving your life for the cause of Islam. Then you know you're going. It's a works righteousness religion. Whereas our Jesus gave us the religion of grace. By grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves and not of your works, so you can't boast about it. But it is a gift of God. We are saved by grace, not of works. Saved by grace, not of works. It is only by grace. We can't brag about one thing that got us saved. The only thing that gets us saved is the blood of the Lamb of God. That's it. That is it. And you can't work for it. And you can't add to it, and you can't subtract to it, or subtract from it. He died once for all. And so it's done. It is finished. And so this invasion of Israel and attack on the Jewish people will indeed be a jihad, but it will be, folks, the final jihad. I'm going to say that again. It'll be the final jihad. See, when, when, when the Twin Towers were struck in 01, that was a jihad. And there have been jihads, hundreds of them, all over the world, thousands of them. But this will be the final one. This will be Islam's greatest effort, most violent attack, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take it personally. Now, sitting on the sidelines, you're wondering, where are we in all this? A mild protest will come from a few nations sitting on the sidelines. They are Sheba and Dedan, Ezekiel 38, verse 13. And the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, and they will say to you, now look, it's not a very strong protest. Are you come to take a spoil? Let me translate that. What are you doing, dude? But it's not like, hey, back off. It's just, you know, it's this kind of weak protest. Have you gathered your company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take away a great spoil? Who are these nations? Real quickly, Sheba and Dedan were cities in what is now Saudi Arabia. It's interesting that they are not involved in the invasion, but rather sitting on the sidelines watching it unfold. They are spectators. And there you go, Saudi Arabia in the blue, right beneath Iraq and Iran and Turkey. So Saudi Arabia... Tarshish is most commonly agreed to be ancient Tartessus, or the area of present-day Spain in Western Europe. In Ezekiel's day, Tarshish was in the farthest west regions of the known world. By referring to Tarshish and all her merchants, Ezekiel could have been indicating that Western Europe will join with Saudi Arabia in denouncing the invasion. 
Now, what is the symbol of Britain? It's a lion. Now, if I could squeeze America in here anywhere, here's where I'd squeeze America in. It says, it says, the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions thereof. We know the merchants of Tarshish were seafaring traders who wound their way along the coast of England. And some say were there at the very beginning. So if the young lions from England are also sitting there protesting, we could be one of those young lions because we came from there. I can kind of picture us going, hey, what are you doing? I can't picture us right now being real upset. The royals of Saudi Arabia mostly side with the West out of an interest in self-preservation. I can see them not being involved in the jihad. And at times, they oppose us behind the scenes, but they would most probably put on a show of opposition to radical Islam in order to maintain the support of Western governments because we buy all their oil. A similar alliance has been seen once, uh, once before during the Gulf War. Remember the Gulf War of the early 90s? The U.S., Western, uh, the U.S., Western Europe, and Saudi Arabia were allied against Iraq. Well, that was sort of a foretaste of what was coming right there. While Russia and Iran and Sudan and Libya and most other Middle East nations were either aligned with Iraq or against the U.S., either by directly opposing it or by remaining neutral. So there you go. Even back then in the early 90s, it was showing up. Now, when could the Magog invasion occur? Because that's what we want to know, isn't it? Let's start with when this could not have occurred. This prophecy had to be fulfilled in the latter years, Ezekiel said. After Israel was back in her land, remember Israel was, was dispersed for almost 2,000 years. Remember the vision of dry bones? This chapter spoke of Israel being regathered back into her land in the last days. And Ezekiel 37 was fulfilled in 1948, May 14th. And this is when prophecy students believe the end times officially began. Some count from June 1967 when Jerusalem was back within the control of the Jewish people after the Six-Day War. But in either scenario, Ezekiel 37, a last day's vision, has been incredibly fulfilled. Then we see in the very next chapter, Ezekiel 38, 8 to 12, the Magog invasion. Look what's going to happen in the latter years. You're going to come into the land. When, everybody? In the latter years. Say it again. In the latter years, after they have become a nation again. Look what he says. You will come back into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Even Russia talked about the brain drain when all the Jewish people began to inexplicably leave the land of Russia and return to the land of Israel. Jewish people from all over the world felt a compelling to return. It was the call of the Spirit of God. You will ascend. You will come like a storm, you eight nations that Ezekiel named. You will cover the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it's going to come to pass that thoughts are going to pop into your mind 
and you will make an evil plan, Gog and Magog, Iran and the rest of you. You will say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up against a land of unwalled villages. I'm going to go to a peaceful people who are dwelling safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. I'm going to take plunder, and I'm going to take booty. I'm going to stretch out your hand to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from where, everyone? From the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land, are restored Israel. As a precondition for this to occur, Israel needed to be dwelling safely. What does that mean? They're not dwelling safely. Safely employs the word betok or betok, which can mean false confidence. Not necessarily in physical security, as the English translation would imply, but they will feel like this can't happen. Ezekiel also describes unwalled villages, which he had probably never seen in his day. And now let's close with a verse from Zechariah. And next week we're going to look at the battle itself. It is unbelievable. This battle, there's no question, is going to be nuclear. And God himself is going to intervene and, and save the Jewish people. And it is an amazing thing to read. And it's just around the corner. Look what Zechariah wrote in chapter 2. He said, And said unto him, Run and speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem is going to be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. How many of you would love a wall of fire from God to be around you? A wall of fire. And I'm going to be the glory in the midst of her. Now next week we're going to see that this is not Armageddon. And then we're going to look at the battle. Let's stand, can we? How many of you know the Bible is the Word of God? Amen. Amen. Isn't this uncanny? 2,500 years ago. Lord, we just thank you that this incredible prophet Ezekiel, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote of things 25 centuries down the tunnel of time, the last days. And now, Lord, here we are. And we see Iran, we see Russia, we see Turkey, we see Syria, we see so many of them. Islamic, anti-Semitic, hating the Jewish people. It's so easy now, Lord, to imagine this terrible confederacy of nations that will decide to attack your land. Lord, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Can we just turn to the east, everybody? And let's close tonight by just praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is to the east. Let's pray. Father, Israel is surrounded by nations that hate their guts. Lord, Benjamin Netanyahu is meeting with his security advisors and his war generals to know what to do about Russia and Iran particularly as Iran creates the nuclear weaponry by which to attack them. Lord, we pray not for the death of Israel, but for the peace of Israel. 
and for the blessing of God on Jerusalem. We pray, Lord, that you will give them strength and give them your protection and give them your wisdom. And we speak blessing on them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.